Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. So we're going to have the Bible reading now. So if you've got a Bible with you, we're going to read from parts of Romans 9 and all of Romans 10. So we're going to start with Romans 9, 1 to 8. Uh, So if you don't have a Bible with you, we will have the words behind me on the screen, um, or there's some baskets in the rows. There's a Bible in there. You can grab that and read along. If you don't actually have a Bible yourself, you can keep that. You can take that home with you. That's our gift to you. So I'm going to start with Romans 9, 1 to 8, then I'll jump to 22 and 26, still in 9, but I'll I'll give you the two as we go along. So let's go. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So now we're going to jump to Romans 9, 22 to 26. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be called, there they will be called, children of the living God. So now we're going to read Romans 10, 1 to 21, which is the whole chapter. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will ascend to the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, 
Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words into the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Thanks for that, mate. Um, it's great to be here this morning, and that's a literal statement. As Lockie mentioned, in the last few days I've been at a conference in Sydney, and as we're taking a three-hour drive home from the conference centre to the airport, I got a text message on my phone saying, your flight has been cancelled, full stop. And I was like, where's the rest of the message? What happens now? And so I thought maybe it was a hoax. So I got on the phone to Jetstar and I rang them, and sure enough, there weren't enough people on the flight, so they'd cancelled our flight. And I said, well, how do I get home now? I need to be home to preach in the morning. Not that they were that concerned about that. But they said, well, we'll put you on a later flight. I said, that's great. What time? And they said, well, it won't be 5.30 now. It'll be 5 past 7. So I said, great, lock me in. So headed to the airport at about 6, uh, about 6 o'clock. And at 6.30, a massive storm rolled into Sydney. And so lightning and thunder and, you know, the whole place was shaking. And um, there were flights all around me being cancelled. And mine kept getting postponed and delayed. And so I was mildly concerned at that point in time, but I know back here some of the pastors were freaking out and were starting to cast lots about who was going to preach Romans 10 this morning. But by the grace of God, at least for them, I got home last night at about 11 o'clock. So here we are today. Our current series at the moment, if you're visiting or this is the first time you've been to follow our current preaching series here at Followers right through the book of Romans. It's the longest series that we've ever done as a church and it's a series that we've called The Big Stuff because it addresses uh, this extraordinary letter which is written by the Apostle Paul, addresses all the big issues of our faith. And so last week we started a three-chapter mini-series from Romans chapter 9 through to 11. And some scholars believe that these chapters are kind of like a detour from the main gospel thrust of Romans. Um, Others say that they're the climax of the letter. And some people believe it's uh, a sermon that Paul preached somewhere else that was just inserted into this letter. Um, But I actually think in chapter 9, Paul is simply following a progression of thought flowing from the first eight chapters. In the first eight chapters, Paul has given us the most magnificent and in-depth explanation of the gospel in, in, in the whole Bible, the good news of Christianity. This is the most thorough gospel presentation that we find in all of Scripture. Paul has outlined the problem. The problem is human sin and the just punishment we deserve for it. He is described as the wages of sin being death. But he's also declared the remedy to sin, which is Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life 
and then died a sinner's death on the cross, not for his sin, but to pay the penalty for ours. And so when we put our faith in Jesus, we have forgiveness for our sin, we have joy in life, and we have hope for the future, not just in this life, but for all eternity. That is the gospel in a nutshell, and that is good news for everyone who believes in Jesus, which brings us over into chapter 9, 10, and 11. Romans chapter 9 to 11, these three incredible chapters contain two of the most hotly debated issues right throughout the, is- the, the history of Christianity. Last week we addressed the first one. It was the issue from Romans chapter 9 of predestination. And you've all come back. So that's good. You listen to my word of warning that we debate these things, but we never divide over them. And we don't become so obsessed with them that they you know, curtail us from our mission to share the gospel with people. So you've come back, which is good. And so last week, as we talked about predestination, which is really the question, does God predetermine those who will be saved and those who won't? I gave you three things to consider as you think about that issue. The first one was the sovereignty of God. The second one was the character of God. And the third one was our character. And so if you're interested in hearing more about that, you can listen to the podcast at follow.church. And so predestination was the first controversial issue in these three chapters. But the second controversial issue is around the nation of Israel. And the question is, what is the position now and in the future for Israel in God's great plan of salvation? So to be able to answer that question, I think we need to go all the way back to find out why God chose Israel in the first place. And so we're going to look at this today from parts of chapter 9 that we missed last week, but also from chapter 10 that was read today. And so if you're a note taker today, the first point is simply this. I want to talk about Israel's mission. Now, God has always, by his grace, chosen people that he has set apart to be his representatives on earth, and they have been given authority to act on behalf of God, the king of the universe. Some theologians call these people or these nations vicegerents. And so the first vicegerent or representative that we see in scripture is a person called Adam. Adam was the first person created by God, and he was placed in a place called Eden, and within Eden, he had a special place called the Garden of Eden. This is where God's presence dwelt with Adam. God said to Adam in that place, you've got a mission, and your mission is to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so as Adam began to um, rule over creation, as he started to tend to God's great creation, he was to extend the geographical boundaries of the Garden of Eden until it covered the earth. And so from the very start, God wasn't just after Eden, after this one little spot. God was after the whole earth. Uh, Scripture tells us in many places, but Psalm 24.1 is one of those places, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God is interested in the whole earth, not just any particular spot. And so God wasn't just after Eden, he was after the earth. In other words, God's presence was not simply to stay in Eden, but it was to start there and then fill the whole earth, and therefore Adam and Eden would be a blessing to all people. And so to summarize, Adam was given a special place, he was given a special role, he was given a special mission, and within that he was given a law to obey. God said to Adam, do not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden or you will surely die. And so Adam was living in paradise, living in the promises of God, and these promises from God were clear, with a clear mission to expand, but they were also conditional upon his obedience to God's command. Now, most of us know the story, that there in Eden, there was a serpent, the devil, and the devil came to Adam and Eve and said, hey, you're not going to surely die if you eat from that tree. In fact, God's just a little bit insecure, and he knows if you eat from that tree, you're going to become just like him. 
And so they listened to the devil and they said, goody gumdrops. I'm not sure if that's exactly what they said in the Hebrew, but it was something that was the gist of it. They said, that sounds good to us. We want to be our own God. We want to be just like God. And so they willingly disobeyed and rebelled against God because they wanted to be like him. And so they disobeyed the one command they were given. And as a result, we know the story that sin entered God's very good creation. And the order he had put in creation now plunged into chaos. Adam, as a punishment for his sin, was expelled from the garden. He was cast out of the presence of God. And because of his disobedience, um, Eden, as a consequence of that sin, lost its potential to bless the world outside. And from Genesis 3 to 12, we see the narrative of the world start to spiral downwards as a result of sin and death. However, God has always planned to have people representing him on earth. And so in Genesis chapter 12, God chose another person, another vice-gerent of creation. His name was Abram. And Abram says to him, uh, God says to Abraham that I'm going to bless you. He gives him these great promises. You ought to pick up where Adam failed. And so I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And you will be a great nation. This is what we know as the nation of Israel. And then he gives him his mission. Here's the purpose of Israel being elected in the first place. He says, through you... All people on earth will be blessed. All people on earth will be blessed. This is why he's been called, this is his mission. And so Israel were given a special role to play as God's representatives, chosen from among the nations as God's people. And they were made these great promises. They were given a place to dwell. We know it as the promised land. They were given a law to obey. We know it as the Ten Commandments. And they were given incredible promises that were also conditional upon their obedience. And so we see it, uh, the land, we know the land didn't belong to Adam, it didn't belong to Israel, the land is the Lord's, we see that in Leviticus 25 and many other places in the Old Testament. And in Leviticus and other parts of the Old Testament, God promises that his people will dwell safely in the land if, if you obey my commands, if you don't bow down to false idols, if you treat your neighbours fairly. This is how God's people are to represent him through dedication, worship, and justice. And so what I want you to see is this, that Adam is really a proto-Israel. Adam is God's representative. Israel is God's representative. Adam was given a special place to dwell called the Garden of Eden. God's people, Israel, were given a special place to dwell the promised land. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the command that they were given. The difference between good and evil. The law given to Israel is like the tree in the garden. It tells you what the difference is between good and evil, what pleases God and what displeases him. Obedience is always a condition of dwelling in safely in the land and expulsion or exile is the punishment for disobedience. And so the role given to Adam in God's plan was transferred to Israel, but throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Israel made the very same mistakes Adam made through disobeying God. They failed over and over again. And when they did, they were punished and exiled from the promised land just as Adam was. And yet the Old Testament is a story of God's redemption and grace over and over again through the Exodus and many other situations where he saves and restores this disobedient people. And so the question is why? Why would he keep pursuing a chosen people that keep rebelling against him? Well, we know that God is gracious. He's slow to anger, he's abounding in love, he's quick to forgive. But we also learnt last week that God is sovereign. God is in control. He has a plan and through his people, and he has a plan through his people, and his plan will come to pass because he is God. 
And he said it will. He has a plan A, and he doesn't need a plan B. God's plan A is that he's going to bless the world through his people. So the question is, how could Israel be a blessing to all the earth in God's plan? Well, it certainly wasn't through their behavior. It certainly isn't through the way they represented God because the Old Testament is a train wreck of disobedience and unfaithfulness to God. And so Israel was ultimately to be a blessing to the world through the work and person of Jesus. You see, Jesus was a Jew. He was from the ancestry of Israel. He was the one true Israelite. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 calls him the second Adam or the last Adam. And where Israel failed, Jesus did not fail. And I think we see it clearly in his life. He was and is the perfect vicegerent representative of God. He represented his father perfectly. He lived a life of righteousness and justice and he obeyed the law completely. And so he is exactly what the vicegerent is meant to be as they represent the king. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and he's the exact representation of his being. In other words... In Jesus, we see the mission of God lived through Jesus' life, his perfect keeping of the law, his sacrificial death for our sin, and his resurrection from the dead, giving us hope for eternal life. Jesus was the Messiah, the great leader that had been promised to the Jews in the Old Testament, and this is how their blessing would finally be revealed to all people. Jesus came to save those who were lost, and to open up the possibility of salvation to all people. Now, the tragic thing is this, that when Jesus came, his own people rejected him. In John chapter 1, verse 11, it says, Jesus came to his own, and yet his own did not receive him. Jesus is the guarantee of all the promises God has made, and they are not guaranteed by the blood of our nationality. They are promised by the blood of Christ and received By faith. It is through faith in Jesus that salvation was open to everyone on earth throughout history. And in this way, all nations on earth are blessed. This is what God had promised to do through Israel. Now, the tragic thing for Paul was that his own people, the Jews, Israel, had not received Jesus. Therefore, they were outside of his promises and they weren't living at the mission they were called to. And this broke his heart. And he outlines this at the beginning of both chapter 9 and also chapter 10 in the first three verses of both chapters. So let's pick it up at chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow. An unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, same sentiment. My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, Romans, as a letter, was written to a church that was predominantly non-Jewish, Gentile. There were some Jewish Christians, but the recipients were primarily people who had accepted the Jewish saviour that the majority of Paul's people, the Jews, had rejected. Not all of them, but the majority of Jewish people throughout history have rejected the saviour that they were meant to represent. Just last year, this time, I was in Israel, and I found out when I was there that uh, even over 85% of the current state of Israel have rejected Jesus as King and Messiah, which is a tragedy. This is despite all the advantages that they had been given under the Old Covenant listed at the start of chapter 9. 
verses 4 and 5, Paul says that they were adopted as God's people. God chose them by his grace. They had covenants or promises given to them by God. They were given the law, which showed them what God expected in a relationship with them. They had the example of the patriarchs, these great heroes of the faith that had gone before them, these great examples for them. And most powerfully, from within their own nation came the ancestry, the bloodline of Jesus himself, which all scripture points to. And so even though they had all this privilege and saw themselves as the favourites, God's people on the inside, they now clearly found themselves on the outside of the people of God. And the reason for that is made clear in chapter 10, verse 3. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now in our faith as New Covenant believers, as Christians, um, we know that we can only have relationship with God because of his grace. Uh, received through faith in his son. And so grace is the heart of the gospel. We can only be Christians because of God's grace and undeserved love shown towards us. But the truth is that despite we say that it's all being about God's grace, we often live our lives differently to that. We live our lives like we have to earn a relationship with God. And I know all of us feel this at times, even though we say it's all about grace, we kind of live our lives like it's a little bit about works. And so we'll, we'll feel it if we haven't read the Bible for a week. And then suddenly dawns on us, I haven't had my quiet time. And suddenly I start to feel guilty and I think maybe I'm not in a relationship with God anymore. Maybe God's displeased with me. If we lack prayer time, sometimes we think that maybe God doesn't love us as much as if we had a praise. And we see that many people in churches, people who have been Christians for years, end up doing, doing, doing and serving, serving, serving and striving, striving, striving. And they'll say, I'm doing it to serve the Lord. But if you scratch just a little bit below the surface you actually find out that sometimes we're doing it to earn God's approval. These are the traps that we often fall into. They are not the gospel of grace we've received. And yet what we say we believe is often betrayed by the life that we live. And if we're not careful, Christian faith can easily become a faith about works. This is what had happened for many of the Jews. The Jews took their confidence in salvation from keeping the law. They saw themselves as righteous and chosen because they'd been given the law. But the problem for them was that the very same law that they took such pride in had become a curse to them because they couldn't keep it. They were breaking God's law, which they were relying on for a relationship with God, and they were falling short of God's standard, and therefore they were outside of God's people because this self-righteousness they had established did not submit to true righteousness that only comes from God in Christ. This broke Paul's heart and he expresses his heartfelt desire confirmed by the Holy Spirit that he wants to see them saved. And I've got to say, I love Paul's pastoral heart. I love the way he loves these people because at this point, Paul's people, the Jews, they absolutely hated him. They despised him. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it really difficult to love people who hate me. I find it hard enough to truly love the people who love me let alone loving the people who hate me. And if I'm honest, I know I'm meant to. Jesus says, what does he say? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. But if I'm honest before you today, I find it hard to love the people that hate me and I probably pray less for them um, as well. I don't, I don't pray for them as much as I should. And yet Paul sets a great example for us that we are called to love everyone, even people who hate us. And I love the fact that Paul doesn't just use words to describe this, but he models this kind of love to us. 
See, Paul's gone from being one of the most respected men in the Jewish community, a, a revered rabbi, to now become one of, if the most despised man of all. They hated his faith in Christ. They saw him as a traitor and a defector from Judaism. They hated him so much that they continually hunted him down and even tried to kill him on several occasions. And yet despite all of that, despite of all the things they were doing to bring this guy down, he has this incredibly deep love for them. Paul still cares deeply for his people and he longs for them to receive the promises of God. And what he's trying to teach them through all this in Romans is that God is faithful to his promises, but they're not inherited by your nationality. They are received through Christ. And so that's the second point of this message today, that God is faithful to his promises in Christ. Paul was heartbroken for his people. And the fact this chosen people weren't following Christ really raised a number of questions for Paul. But the main one was this, is God really faithful to his promises? Because if he is, and the promises to Israel had failed, could we really trust that his promises to us won't? And it's a pivotal question for each of us to answer as we consider the character of God. Because God has made many great promises to us. But if he's not faithful, they are not worth the paper they are written on. Can we trust in the God of the Bible? Well, Paul answers the question of God's faithfulness swiftly, and emphatically, and the answer you'll be relieved to know is yes. God is faithful, yes. He can be depended on. And so the natural question that flows from that is this, well, what about Israel? Paul clearly explains the answer to that by telling us that not all Israel are true Israel. There are lots of examples of people in our society who claim to be something that they're not. When I was 15, I wore gangster clothes. I used to hang around the local servo with my friends on a Friday night and I was super cool. What are you laughing about? I had baggy jeans, I had a, you know, hanging down my butt, I had a Los Angeles black, you know, Raiders starter jacket, I had a Yankees cap pulled down over my eyes. I wanted to give the impression that I was tough, but you could take one look at me back then, now I'm clearly pretty buff now, but back then... You could take one look at me and you knew straight away as soon as you saw me, despite the jacket and the cap and all the baggy jeans, you could tell that I wasn't a gangster. In fact, if I met a real gangster, I probably would have peed my pants, squealed and run for my life. But don't laugh because this next illustration might be for you. Some people say they go to the gym because they have a membership card. But they also have no chest, no arms and chicken legs. And it's clear that they never actually attend. Others claim to support a footy team. If I haven't hit you yet, I'm going to get you. Some people claim to support a footy team, but you don't even know who they barrack for until their team starts to win. Of Richmond's 100,000 supporters, about 94,000 of them fit into that category. It's believed to be called a bandwagon. In the 2016 census in Australia, 52% of the population identified as Christian. Let me say that again. In 2016, a couple of years ago, 52% of the population identified as Christian. At the time, there were over 24 million people in Australia. Do we really believe that there are over 12 million Bible-believing, spirit-filled Christians in this country? Do you believe that more than one in two people that you run into in the local cafe, in the local community, in your sporting clubs, in your friendship circles, do you really believe that more than one in two of those people are genuinely followers of Jesus Christ? Because I'd like to propose if they were, this country would be a very different place. 
what it tells me is this, that of all the boxes on the census that Australians could tick, many of these people best identify with the values of Christianity, but it certainly doesn't mean that they all follow Christ. Jesus himself said this, didn't he, in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. If that's not one of the most humbling verses in all of Scripture, I don't know what is. Not everyone with baggy jeans and a starter jacket is a gangster. Not all people who say they are gym junkies attend the gym. Not all football barrackers are truly supporters. Not all people who claim Christianity truly follow Christ. This was the same with Israel. Not everyone of Jewish descent is part of true Israel, the people of God. And I think Paul's making this point, and to be fair, he's been making it all the way through Romans. Romans chapter 2, verse 28, he says, A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. In Romans 3, verse 22, he says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference. Between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are all are justified freely by this same grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 4, 16. Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In today's passage, Romans chapter 9, verse 6, Paul once again makes the same clear point. He says, it's not as though God's word to Israel had failed. He is absolutely faithful to his promises For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Verse 7, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, verse 8, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. He continues in verse 26, talking to the Gentiles. He says, I will call them my people. These are quotes from the prophet Isaiah. I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. You see, there's a concept in the Old Testament and the New Testament that is important for us to understand. We're going to touch on it a lot more next week. But it's a concept of a remnant. A remnant is a small minority of the Israelite people who will remain faithful to God and be saved, inheriting the promises of God made to them. These are what Romans refers to as the elect or the chosen or the predestined. And so there is a physical nation of Israel. But within that physical nation, there is a spiritual remnant that has always been there. God has always promised to keep this remnant. They will remain faithful to God and they will inherit the promises made to Israel. These are the ones who God made the promise to in the first place. These are God's true representatives. These are true Israel, children of the promise. Therefore, God's word of promise to Israel has not failed to be fulfilled because it's being fulfilled. In the New Covenant, with new, new Covenant Jewish believers who are the remnant that have always chosen to, always been chosen to inherit the promises of God together with non-Jewish people who have also put their faith in Christ. 
God's promises and his salvation don't come from our heritage, our nationality, our bloodline, our good works. They come through faith in the person of Jesus who fulfilled the promises of God to Israel and opened up the possibility for every person, Jew or Gentile, to be saved. Together in Christ, as Ephesians 2 says, God has taken both the Jew and Gentile and he has made them one humanity. One of the most awesome passages of promise for all people in the entirety of Scripture. I'll read it to you this morning. If you've got your Bibles, you can flick over there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope, and without God in the world. You know, there's two pivotal words coming up now in verse 13. But now, that's what you were formerly. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside In his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Verse 19 Consequently, you, he's talking to non-Jewish, Gentile believers, are no longer foreigners and strangers. But you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole body is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which... God lives by his spirit. This is what Paul refers to in Galatians as the Israel of God. In God's great plan of salvation, first to the Jew and also now to the Gentile, God has brought through his people, Israel, a Messiah, and now both Jew and Gentile in Christ together become the people of God. We inherit the promises of God by faith. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. We join together on the mission of God now to reach all nations with the good news of Jesus, blessing the world as God's representatives, which has been God's plan A all along. God is faithful to his promises. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, and in Christ alone, as Galatians tells us, and Galatians 3 goes on to say that if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We don't inherit the promises of God by nationality. We're guaranteed them by faith. Together, we have this mission to represent God, and this is what he's planned all along, that his kingdom would expand. Israel was called the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Now he says, you are the light of the world. So this mission Israel has always been given. We are now continuing on. This is the mission of the people of God, and this is my final point this morning. We are on an incredibly exciting mission to represent God. We planted this church, Follow Baptist Church, three years ago because we desperately wanted to see people in this region come to know Jesus. We wanted Jesus' name lifted high over our region. We wanted people to see him at work, his supernatural activity. We wanted people to fall on their knees and give their lives and hearts 
to Jesus. And it's been a great joy in our first three years to, to see a group of people that have come together who are hungry for that mission, to represent God, to be a blessing. But I've got to say, it's hard to keep people on mission because we get tired. And to be honest, we can get selfish. If we're not careful, after a while, instead of stepping out in faith to reach people, we actually turn inwards on ourselves and we start worrying more about being comfortable, having all of our needs met. Instead of thinking, what can I give to this mission, which is what you join a mission like this for in the, in the first place, we start to ask, what's in this church for me? Maybe today, God, through the Apostle Paul, is challenging us afresh to realign with his mission, to reevaluate our priorities to pray more passionately for precious people and to reach out to those in our life who don't yet know Jesus. You might think, well, how are we any different to the nation of Israel? We fall short as well. How can we represent God when we fail to obey God perfectly? Well, the difference is this, Jesus. See, the law has been fulfilled by Christ. We are no longer slaves to the law. We are no longer slaves to any sort of self-righteousness. Jesus is a perfect representation of God and through his death, At the cross, the sin that disqualifies us from representing God is paid for. Therefore, we're not expelled from his presence. We're not exiled. But instead, we can boldly come into his presence before the throne of God because the righteousness we have is not our own. It's been given to us by Jesus. This is what the New Testament calls being found in Christ. If you have given your life to Jesus, you are in Christ. That's an incredible thing. Therefore, we are his ambassadors. We are his representatives. We are his vicegerents. We are agents of reconciliation, imploring people to be reconciled to God through Jesus. Picking it up at verse 12 of chapter 10, it says, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And here's the mission that we have, both Jews and Gentiles. Verse 14, How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I want you to look at your feet this morning. That means look at them. That means eyes go down. Very good. Now I want you to say, you are beautiful. (laughs) And again, you are beautiful. You've got beautiful feet. That's why Kim married me. She loves my feet. You've got beautiful feet because your feet carry the most beautiful news the world can ever hear, that Jesus is alive, that he loves us, that he wants to save us, and he wants to call us to a mission to be his representatives. This is exactly what the Great Commission is. It's a reinstating of the original mission where Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me as the vicegerent of God. Now he says, you are the vicegerents of God, therefore go in his power, empowered by his spirit, and make disciples of all nations, extending the geographical boundaries of the reign and rule of the kingdom of God, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them his obedience again to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. I don't know about you, but that mission excites me no end. I think it's a mission worth getting out of bed for. I think it's a a mission worth giving your life for, that we would represent the king of the universe as his representatives here on earth, proclaiming the good news of his kingdom through his son. Now as the chosen, spirit-filled people of God, one humanity made up of both Jew and Gentile, we are given the original mission and God's authority that was given to Adam and Israel to represent God on earth and to expand the boundaries of his reign as we share the life-changing good news of the gospel. 
Paul is heartbroken for his people. But I think we need to remember for Paul that it's even more personal than that. It's not just a generic group of people. He's also heartbroken for individuals within that community. When he talks about his people, his nation, he's talking about his mum, his dad, his brothers and sisters, his childhood acquaintances, his community, his best friends, and his heart aches for those he loves who don't know Jesus. I wonder this morning, do we have the same urgency? Do we have the same longing for our friends, for our next-door neighbours, our family and our community to have the hope and life and joy that we do? Do we have the same broken heart, the same anguish that Paul had for those who are currently outside the people of God? The role of Adam in Eden was transferred to Israel and now in Christ includes us. We are called to be a blessing in this community. As Lockie said before, our vision is Jesus. Our mission is to follow Jesus in our community for his glory. Our mission today in Officer and Beyond is what it's always been as God's people, to be a blessing to the world through lives of worship, obedience and justice, sharing the good news of God ultimately made possible in Christ. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.